This is the Purpose Church podcast where we exist to help every person live on purpose. It is our prayer that this message helps you experience God in a brand new way. Uh, we're, we're in week two of this series that Pastor Landon kicked off last week called Road Trippin'. And we're following the Apostle Paul through his four missionary journeys, or we're calling them his road trips, as he went around the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and Europe, and he spread the gospel like wildfire. And he was planting churches, um, and he went through a lot of things and, and wrote a lot of the New Testament during that time. And so that's what we're jumping into today is week number two of Road Trippin'. And so as Paul went about his journeys, he wrote these letters, these God-inspired letters that are part of our New Testament. We're going to be in Philippians today. And, and to understand really and appreciate what the Apostle Paul was getting at in these letters, you have to understand this was not an easy road trip for Paul. These missionary journeys came with a lot of persecution. Everywhere he went, people did not like that the gospel was being spread and that people's lives were being changed and people were being set free. You can't control free people. So people, there was opposition everywhere Paul went. He was beaten multiple times to the point of death almost. There's this one time where, where they stoned him because they wanted him to get out of the city and he wouldn't. So they stoned him. They thought he was dead. They threw his body out. And then the, the, his friends came up and they're like, Paul, are you okay? He's like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it again. And he went right back into the same city and kept preaching the gospel. He, he met a lot of opposition. He was shipwrecked and marooned on an island. And then at the end of his second Roman imprisonment, he was beheaded. He was killed for spreading this faith. These were tough road trips for Paul. But despite this opposition, during his second missionary journey, God tells Paul to go to this region of Macedonia, to this city called Philippi, and plant a church there. So he does. And later on, during his first Roman imprisonment, this dude was in prison a lot. During his first Roman imprisonment, he writes the letter to the Philippian church that we have in our Bible, the book of Philippians, which we're going to look at a little bit today. Go ahead and put that map up on the screen for me. It's a little hard to see. The font is too tiny. We need some bigger TVs up in here or something. So this is his missionary journey, his second missionary journey. He took a total of four. This huge loop that he took was thousands of miles. He didn't even have a car. And he, so he starts up here in Antioch in the upper right-hand corner, travels all the way across what's now modern-day Turkey, landing in Greece, or Macedonia, as it was called then. And there's up there, right next to Macedonia, a little word, Philippi. There's a little town right there. And that's what the letter to the Philippians was written to. This is this people group. So why does this matter? Philippi is right between, on a trade route, between Europe and the Middle East. So anybody going from Europe to the Middle East or from the Middle East to Europe would have to travel through Philippi to get there. So this was a very strategic place for Paul to plant a church because the gospel would follow these traders as they went, and it would spread. And so Paul goes to Philippi. He plants this church, and this is the first time that the gospel ever reaches Europe. It stayed really close to Jerusalem before Paul. Jesus and his ministry stayed really close to Israel and in those surrounding areas right there. And so Paul's the one who brings it out and spreads it. And the Philippian culture, and the reason this applies to us today is because the Philippian culture was very much like ours. It was complex, multicultural, largely educated society with many different people groups, uh, a complex economy, several different religions. Uh, it, was a, it was a melting pot, kind of like we are. They mostly worshipped either uh, no gods or they worshipped Caesar. So worshipping the government or agnosticism sounds a lot like America, if you ask me. So <laughs> like us, the Philippian church was likely overcome with constant busyness and the demands of a fast-paced 
culture. And so Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church addressing a very important key thing that they're lacking, and that's joy. Joy is the theme of the book of Philippians, which is relevant today because in our fast-paced, multicultural, complex society, we have all the things. We have a first-world country, have lots of blessings, lots of material possessions, but depression, anxiety, and suicide are at an all-time high. So we still lack joy despite all the things. And so that's why Paul writes this letter, to reinforce the importance of joy. And that's actually just the title of the sermon today is Joy. Joy, or the verb of the word rejoice, appears over 15 times in just four short chapters of Philippians. Paul is trying to hammer home this really important point of joy. And it's worth noting that he wrote this letter from prison. Paul is jailed upwards of three times. Once when he plants a church in, in Philippi, he, they throw him in prison. Later, he's imprisoned twice in two Roman imprisonments. And during that first Roman imprisonment, he writes this letter about joy, showing us that joy is not circumstantial. It's something that transcends even hard circumstances. And his main encouragement to a culturally distracted and busy people is to fight hard to maintain their joy. So my goal today, we're going to look at a couple of the verses from Philippians um, and starting with one that really sums up Paul's kind of message that he communicated to that church that I think God wants to communicate to this church today. It's Philippians 4.4. 4. This is the, the anchor verse, if you will. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Some of the time. No, it says all the time. We, we don't always feel like rejoicing, but Paul commands us to rejoice nonetheless. And the problem is, I think, most people don't know how to joy or how to rejoice, right? We don't, we don't I think there's a lack of understanding uh, in our society and maybe even in the church about the importance of joy. I have this on the screen for you. Joy is critical to our strength and effectiveness as Christians. If you take away our joy, you neuter our ability to reproduce and spread the gospel. Central to Christian belief is the idea that a life of following Christ is better than what the world offers. Otherwise, what, what are we doing? If, we, if we're just as broke down, busted, and disgusted as everyone else, like if we have nothing better to offer them, then we might as well not even be doing this, right? So th this is central to our understanding of Christianity. But what is different or better about a Christian life? I think two things. One is the hope of heaven, that our Savior died for us and loves us and created a plan of redemption for us. So there's the hope of heaven, but there's also the promise of joy. Maybe that would have been a better title for the sermon. The promise of joy here on earth, despite the suffering and the pain and the circumstances that we go through. So this promise of joy, I think, doesn't hit for everybody because I think there's a lack of clarity on joy. Oftentimes we equate it to a feeling. We dumb it down to that level. And with joy being one of the central themes of Philippians, I really felt like God wanted me to clarify some things about joy for y'all this morning. So if you're with me, say I'm ready. <clears throat> so joy is one of the marks of genuine conversion. What that means is that Christians are separate from other people groups because we have joy. We're the only people group that is as persecuted and killed and hated around the world, and yet we still are known for having joy. We shouldn't, in all honesty. Like sometimes life with Jesus becomes harder 
because of you're a follower of Christ. Now not only do people not like you like they already didn't, now the devil doesn't like you either, and he wants to come against you, right? So it sometimes becomes harder, yet there's joy. And so here's some thoughts I have on joy. Joy is mark of genuine conversion. It's the sustenance or fuel that gives Christians the strength to get through trials. Joy can overflow as an outpouring of the Spirit in us, like, like those fountains of living water that overflow into everlasting life that Jesus talked about. It's the, joy is the soul-attracting bait that pulls in the seeker who knows that there's something more to life than this. It's the draw of Christianity. What's different about these people? They're crazy. They should be miserable, but they have joy. Joy is to be cultivated like a plant, and if nurtured, it will produce life-giving sustenance. So I believe that if believers were to truly understand joy, biblically understand joy, we could truly be effective on earth in doing what our purpose is in spreading the gospel. But on the flip side, if we do not understand the importance of joy in our lives, or if we allow our circumstances or the devil to steal our joy, we'll be impotent and ineffective in our mission on earth. So to understand the type of joy uh, that, that can transform and sustain you, I, I have four questions that I think the Bible answers. Go ahead and put those questions up on the screen for me. I think you should not leave your brain at home when you come to church. Is everybody with me? You should think, you should ask questions like, man, this doesn't make sense. We need to figure out what's going on. And if the Bible is really true, then it'll stand up to scrutiny. So here's the four questions we're going to ask today. How is God-given joy different from what the world offers? What exactly is joy? How do I get this joy? And then what's trying to steal my joy? Is everybody ready? All right. So question number one, how is God-given joy different from what the world offers? Scripture says that joy comes from Jesus, and it's not the same as the happiness from the world. It's a, an abiding, a deep living kind of joy. John 15 says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide or live in my love. And these things I've spoken to you so that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be halfway kind of joy that helps you sometimes. No, it's your joy may be full. Everybody say full joy. Sorry, I teach in kids ministry. I require audience participation. So this full kind of joy that Jesus promises here, if we live in his love, is a type of joy that can fill you up completely and sustain you, almost like gas for a car. So when thinking about happiness versus joy, because they're not the same thing. I have this up here for you guys. I feel that happiness is temporary, circumstance-based. Ooh, I'm spitting. Good thing the rows are far back for a splash zone. Uh, they're circumstance-based, emotion, surface level, and someone else could take it from you. For example, if after church today you saw me in the parking lot with a bat hitting your car, poof, you might have come in with joy, but you're going to leave with some anger. You're going to be like, what is this guy doing? I would, I would be able to take your happiness, excuse me, not, not joy. So this happiness is circumstantial. Throw up the next slide for me. Joy is lasting, abiding. It goes deeper. It goes to the soul level, marking your character, defining you, and nothing can take it away from you. I noticed this most clearly in my life when my wife and I had the privilege of going on a, a missionary trip to Africa. 
Uh, we went to the country of Burundi. It was a fantastic experience. We got to help them with some of the, uh, the things they're doing there with a school and a well. And it was a, an amazing life-changing trip. So one of the things that marked me from the whole trip was the fact that this this people group in Burundi, they were, they were poor. They had, they had nothing. They had no economy, no infrastructure, no running water. They lived in mud huts. They literally had nothing. And they were followers of Christ. And they were so ridiculously full of joy that it was utterly infectious. I was so happy to be around this people who had no reason to be happy, but they were full of something that was from God that separated them from the world. Does that make sense to everybody? So this is the type of joy that I'm talking about. And society says that happiness is in the buying of things and the pursuing of success or in the next relationship. But something's missing from that. And, and I venture to bet that you felt it too. You can't buy true joy. You, you get a new car, yes, you're happy, but how long until you want another new car? Right? When's the next thing? I'm still hungry for more. There's, a, there's an ache that's not yet full. And that's because you and I were created with an eternal hunger that no thing in this world can satisfy. Only an eternal source can fill that eternal hunger that we have. And I think we're anemic of this. And I found myself even early on as a Christian in my, in my road trip of life, feeling overly busy, anxious about being alone, looking for any external stimulus to make me happy in what turned out to be a a joyless pursuit of happiness, running myself to exhaustion only to find that none of those things actually brought me any joy. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. We were created for more. So that's the difference between happiness and joy. Question number two, what is joy? What is it? Biblically, what, what is it? If there's something more important here, if there's something deeper, I want to know what it is. The Bible says in Galatians <clears throat> that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It, it's not a fruit of Jesse or a fruit of Naomi or a fruit of Sean. It's a fruit of the Spirit, which means the Spirit is the one who produces the fruit. You couldn't manufacture it artificially if you tried. It's not your responsibility to create this type of joy. It's God's responsibility. But we can limit the abundance of that fruit by starving it of nutrients, right? The Bible talks a lot about plants. Sometimes I think God's like, y'all are so confused about yourselves. Here's a plant. Look at this. This is going to make sense. Trust me. So he compares this gift that comes from life with the Spirit to fruit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The Bible also says that this fruit of the Spirit gives us strength. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. So like fruit, it's nourishing and can give you strength. Joy does that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The context of that verse is that it was desperate times for Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Jerusalem's wall had been taken down and they were uh, vulnerable to the enemy. And so nobody wanted to rebuild the wall because they were afraid because they were under captivity. And so Nehemiah does the hard thing and he follows God's instruction And the result is rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And afterwards, he was strengthened by God's joy because he followed God's plan. Does that make sense? Joy gives you the strength to do hard things. If you have no no gas left in the tank and you're like, something else comes. And then something else comes and you're like, man, I can't get a break. You feel like you're like, man, I can conquer the world today. I feel great. 
No. If you're empty and you've got nothing to give, there's no strength for you even to obey the things that God tells you to obey. And so Nehemiah kind of addresses this. It says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy given to you through the Holy Spirit provides strength for obedience. Bet you've never seen joy as a fuel source to be able to accomplish the thing God tells you to accomplish, but it's true. Strength to do things like what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 1.27, I'm sorry, 2.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a high standard on the life of a Christian, but I think people do this backwards. I think most of the time we try to do right things and think that all of a sudden we're going to have this discipline that came out of nowhere to do these right things And then we're going to have the strength to keep doing these right things. That sounds like a quick way to burn yourself out. Rather, God says a different way that if through the fruit that only the Holy Spirit can provide, God can give you joy to have the strength to obey. That's a different different order. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is at the end. You You got to first experience the love of Christ. You've got to be transformed by it, be filled with his joy to have strength and perspective, to have the peace, to have, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it grows. I don't know if it's meant to go in that order, but I feel like it is because it makes a ton of sense. So that's what it is, which brings us to question number three. If joy comes from the Holy Spirit and it gives you strength, it's necessary for you to have strength. Without it, you won't have strength, how do I have joy? Well, to answer this, I have three, three points, and I, w- I want you to help me. This is, this is Sunday school, okay? What helps a plant grow? Three things. Water, sunlight, soil. Water, sunlight, and soil. That's, and if God's comparing this to a fruit, let's see, what, let's see what the word says about this. I think sunlight can represent the presence of God. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Not a little bit of joy, not joy just barely, but fullness. Filled to the fullness with joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I feel like talking about the fullness for a second. This isn't in my notes, but in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for that church. It's a different letter. I think he might have been in prison when he wrote that. Don't quote me on that. He writes to them and says, I pray for you to have strength to comprehend the love of Christ that passes knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So it requires the spirit to even comprehend Jesus's love for you. Then you're full of the fullness of God. The fullness of God is what gets you through a trial. The fullness of God, when you're on empty and you need to be refilled, you can go to other things, but they will not fill you. It's only the fullness of God that's going to fill you. So the fullness of God is in his presence. And I think uh, like my favorite probably story in the Bible that, that really represents this, this presence of God filling somebody is a story from the Old Testament with, with King David. Because King David wrote in one of the Psalms that, uh, actually, it's the verse that Jordana quoted while she was on stage. It's that in your presence, oh, I'm sorry, uh, he inhabits the praises of his people. So to get in the presence, you got to praise. 
but you don't always feel like praising, right? But the, if praise brings the presence and presence brings the joy, that's a lot of peace. Splash zone warning. <laughs> presence brings joy, then you got to praise even when you don't feel like it. So King David, here he is, Old Testament. He, he is, he's told he's going to be king. He's not yet king. He has an army of followers that, that support him. And they're out doing some army things. Who knows what they're doing? Probably training. I don't know. And they're out there. And while they're gone, their camp gets attacked. And the Amalekites come in and, and clean them out. They take their women, their children, all their stuff, their wives and their kids, robbed from them. And so they come back and they see that their camp has been pillaged. And it says that these men, these warriors, they wept. They were bitter of soul and wept until they had no strength left to weep. That is a low point for these mighty men. And then worse, they turn on David. How could you do this? And they threatened to stone him. They were going to kill their leader because he had let this happen. And so there's David. Not only has he lost his wife, his kids, all of his stuff, his people have now turned against him. He is utterly alone. And so what does he do? He gets in the presence of God. The Bible says that he takes the garment of the priest, the ephod, which was a ceremonial garment for worship. And it says that he strengthens himself in the Lord and he worshiped the God that he knew. So he gets in the presence because in the presence there is fullness of joy. Does that make sense to everybody? So that's the first one. This is how to have joy. This is arguably the most important part. If you get this practically, this can change your life. The presence of God is where the joy is found. So that's sunlight. Then there's water. So I think water represents the word of God. And the reason I say that is because in John chapter 7, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there's this nourishment that comes from being around Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus is the word made flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the literal thought and word of God made into a human being is Jesus on display for the world to see what the word of God looks like in action. And so when we get in the word, we're actually spending time with Jesus. Does that make sense? Which... Interestingly, John 15, as the Father, back to this verse, as the Father has loved me, abide in that love. I spoke this that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. Are y'all seeing a theme here? This is very important that we understand how to get this joy. Reading the word, discovering Jesus' love for you fills you with joy. And the third, the third thought about how to help the fruit of the Spirit that is joy grow is good soil, right? You got sunlight, water, and soil. You got presence, word. And I, and I want to call good soil community. The Bible talks about being planted in the house of God, being in a family of believers. If you're church hopping, I'm not the senior pastor, so I can say this stop church hopping, find a home, get planted, get, get in a life giving community. That's the way God designed us. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2 2. It would make my joy complete if you were of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose church. Oh, I'm sorry, I added that. Intent on one purpose. So there's a, there's a unity that is necessary for joy. Does that make sense? 
So we, we just launched a semester of small groups uh, like a week or so ago. Small group roster is live online. I recommend y'all get in a small group. Small groups don't make friends for you, but they set you up and tee you up to be vulnerable enough to get into real community with other people because that's the only place that true life change happens. If there's no one to love you and encourage you when you're down, how are you gonna have joy? If there's no one to challenge you and hold you accountable, how are you gonna be obedient to God, which then gives you the joy of the Lord, which gives you strength? How, how, how are we supposed to do any of this by ourselves? And yet we run around pursuing things that we think will make us happy and look up and all of a sudden we have no real friends that really know you and we wonder why we're not happy. That's heavy. Everybody smile at your neighbor. Bring some joy back into the room. I want to call you higher. God designed you to be in relationship with him and with his body, with the church. And God wants to use you. He designed you with a specific purpose in mind. The, the Bible says he knit you together and formed you in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head. He created you on purpose. And I've made like five purpose jokes, so I won't make another one. But it, there's a reason that this is something that we talk about. It's because if you're not on mission, on purpose, the, doing the thing that God created you to do, you will not feel fulfilled. You won't. All right, that's too much intensity. Let's back it down a little bit. So at this point, you might be thinking, okay, I know what joy is. I know how it's better than what the world offers. And now I know how to get it. And yet maybe you find yourself saying, but I am a Christian and I still don't have that kind of joy in my life. I have been there. And which brings us to our fourth question. What is stealing my joy? What is, what is robbing this joy from me? If now I have this understanding, why don't I have it? And I'll tell you this, if joy is your source of strength as a believer, it's the gas to your car, the devil wants nothing more than to steal your joy. Satan wants to take it from you. The Bible says that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your power source kill the potency of your witness and destroy the blessed joy that God wanted to produce in your life. The devil wants to rot your fruit. He wants to take it from you. If sun, water, and soil, which is presence, word, and community are the things that grow your fruit, that's exactly where the devil's going to jump in and try to throw a wrench in the plan. If you're so busy and exhausted and staying up late every night that you don't have it in you to get up 20 minutes early and get in the word, you're not going to connect with Jesus. He aborted your joy. If, if, you don't, if you don't get in the presence during worship, like let's say you're, you're coming to church with your spouse and you get into a fight on the way here. That happens to everybody, even pastors. So you get into a fight on the way to church. Then you're sitting there worshiping, man. Jesus ain't in your pockets, but your hands are in your pockets. And you're like, man, whatever. I'm, I'm in a bad mood. He's interrupted the presence. He inhabits the praises of his people. If you don't have it in you to praise him, his presence won't be there. Right? So that's the devil's plan is to get in between those things that would grow your joy and therefore make you strong enough to obey and then you start feeling guilty because you can't obey God. And then the devil brings in condemnation. You see, you see his tactics. The devil wants to rot your fruit. He wants to steal 
your joy. He would love nothing more than for you to be as broke down, busted, and disgusted as the rest of the world. Because then they go, oh, that's a Christian? I'm good. Right? But if you have joy, it's like those, those lovely people in Burundi that we got the chance to meet. Oh, my gosh. I, I was literally excited to wake up to go talk to them again. That's real joy. It's infectious. I'll save the COVID joke about infectiousness. I'll just keep it to myself. I won't, I won't go there. The devil's tactics aren't new. He'll use whatever he can to steal your joy. I think he uses distraction and busyness. Distraction and busyness. You have no margin in your schedule. You couldn't hear from God if you wanted to. You used to sit there in line for something and have the time to think about the person next to you or pray, but now you're checking your social media feed because you can't go five seconds without looking at it. No time to even pray. Distracted and busy. That'll keep you away from community. Worldly pursuits is another tactic the devil, he'll, he'll, he'll re-mess with, that's not a word, he'll mess with your priorities and make you pursue things. I tell you what, you can't take it with you. You get to the end of your life working for all this money, you can't take it with you. All of a sudden you look up, you weren't there when your kids were being raised. You don't know your spouse. You're like strangers living as roommates. Mm, I won't meddle. The devil will use your own emotions against you. And not even just bad emotions, like good ones, like happiness. That's a, that's an, that's a good emotion. People just want to be happy. They just want to feel good. But you start to pursue those things in and of themselves. They're shallow. These temporary pleasures of this world do not satisfy the soul. They only satisfy for a moment. I think the devil also likes to use circumstance, like tragedy to really rob you of your joy. Bring your perspective in like this, and you can't see what God's doing in your life. You're sitting there, man, yeah, I'm fired up. Heard this message about joy. You get, you get in the car to go home, you get a call. Loved one just died. Just lost that business that I've been trying to build. It just failed. Whatever it is, to pick the tragedy, pick the application for your life. The devil will use that and go, see, nothing is good in your life. And you combat that by remembering what the Lord has done. All through the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel, remember when I brought you out of Egypt? Because that was utterly miraculous, and you seem to be looking at your own belly button right now. So I want to kind of end today with giving you three practical principles, practical applications, so that the devil can't steal your joy. Does that sound like a plan? Because I think it's all good to talk about joy and have this idea in your head about joy. But if you don't actually leave with some practical tools, theology without application is useless philosophy. It doesn't do you any good unless you do something with the truth that you hear about. So here's your, the three things. We'll put them up on the screen for you. The devil can't steal your joy if, I use some alliteration for you just so you'd remember it, prioritize the presence, water the word, and stay in the soil. That makes sense, right? If you prioritize the presence by connecting with God daily, then you'll keep the presence of God in your life and have access to joy. And notice I said connecting with God, not spending time with God. I think that's a common phrase. Spending my quiet time with God or spend, you know, doing my morning devotion time with God. The problem is when you make it a time slot, it's a box to check, and then that's just your own efforts, and you find yourself 
30 minutes to an hour into a study and you're like, I don't even feel like I connected with God. I have no extra joy. Versus if maybe you only had 15 minutes in the morning, but you fell on your knees before the God who loves you and created you. And you said, God, I need your grace today. God, I can't do it. There's too much in my life going on that's overwhelming me. I need your presence. I need your power to get through this day. Who, who's more connected to God? Studying the Hebrew and the Greek words for two hours, which I don't have that kind of time, which you should do. But also, real connection doesn't come from checking the box. It's a posture of the heart. It's an intent. You can go to church. Thank you all for coming to church today. But even coming to church doesn't make you connected to God. That's between you and him. That's between your creator, redeemer, and you. Prioritize the presence. Second one, water the word. I I said water the word because Jesus said that the word is like a seed. The word is like a seed. Do you remember this parable? He said it's sown into four different types of soil. He plants it in four, four different si- types of soil. There's the, the good soil that produces something. There's the soil uh, by the wayside or by the path that the devil just comes and steals before it could even grow anything. There's the soil that has a lot of stones in it. It's rocky ground so the roots are not deep. And then when persecution comes, like what happened to Paul, like what may happen to you, it dies for lack of depth and lack of root. And then there's the seed sown among thorns, which the thorns represent the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that chokes the fruitfulness out of the word and kills it. But there's that good soil, right? And so if we need to water this, this word, we want that, that word in the good soil. Jesus said that the good soil bears fruit, fruit of the spirit. Some bears 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold what was planted. 30, 60, 100. So that's one quarter of the types of seed ever bear any fruit. And of that one quarter, only one third bear 100% increase, reaching their full potential, which I'm not a math genius, but one third of one fourth, somebody pull out a calculator, it's, it's 8.3, which means we'll round up because we're human beings. Nine out of 100 people in this room receive this word, and it's 100% effective. The others, less effective or not effective at all. Which means in order for the word to be effective in your life, you need to consume the daily bread. You need to keep consuming it. You need to read the word every single day. And I say consume it because it's nourishment to you. And the more you water that word, the more likelihood, percentage-wise, I said I'm not a math guy, but I'm talking a lot of numbers here. Percentage-wise, you're more likely to produce real fruit. So prioritize the presence, water the word, and then stay in the soil. You got to stay in the soil. To do that, you need to understand that God has planted you where you are on purpose. Seeds cannot just move when they feel like it because of the pressure of the soil that's on them. You've got to stay in the soil. You got to stay in community. Jesus said it this way. It's very interesting. John 12. Unless a seed is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new seeds, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Unless you stay planted, you'll never die to yourself and live for something greater. Paul realized that dying to yourself is the secret to true joy. Surprising to all the four-year-olds in the world, life is not about you. Life is not about just me. Paul said, for me to live 
is Christ, but to die would be gain. Living is all for the glory of God. In Philippians, he drives this point home by saying, Philippians 3, 8, whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Nothing else mattered to Paul. Nothing. All of the accomplishments, and he had many. He was a religious guy before he came to Jesus. He, previously in Philippians, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kept the law. I was a Pharisee. I did all the right things, but all that I've gained, I counted as a loss because of the surpassing worth. Put that verse back up there. Verse eight, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All these other things are rubbish. That word rubbish is the Greek word skubalon, which is just fun to say. Skubalon means just utter trash, refuse, garbage. None of, none of it matters. This, this God who created me and set in a plan of redemption for my life, he gave everything for me. The Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we didn't deserve it. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is or what you think disqualifies you from being connected to your creator, redeemer, I'm telling you today, Jesus paid for it on the cross. He paid for a way for you to be redeemed and forgiven. Redemption just means to buy back. That's what he did. He purchased you back because he saw you as valuable. That verse goes on to say, Philippians 3, 9, that I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from any type of religious observance. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. Friend, Jesus died for you. He loves you and he wants you. Paul, when he went to Philippi and he planted this church, uh, he actually shortly thereafter was imprisoned. Not when he wrote this. It was an, he's in prison a lot. It was another imprisonment. And while he's imprisoned, they beat him, him and Silas, him and his buddy. They, they beat them before they imprisoned them, and they threw them into the inner darkest dungeon, chained them up, chained to the floor in the middle of the night, having, again, apparently looking like he'd lost everything. Right? The story sounds familiar. Him and Silas begin to praise God. And what happens with praise is the presence. So they're praising God. They're full of joy. It astonishes all the prisoners and guards that are around them. And God does a miracle and he shakes the foundation of the prison and their shackles come free. And so does that of the other prisoners that are there too. Because freedom begets more freedom. And so they're all freed. And the prison guard is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be killed for this. I've, I've let all the prisoners go. So he goes to fall on his own sword to kill himself. And Paul says, wait, 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 wait. We're all still here. Which is interesting because the other prisoners were just given the opportunity of freedom, but they stayed around the joy. They stayed. They were all still there. And the jailer is astonished by this. He says, falls to his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him, 
believe in the Lord Christ and you will be saved. You and all your household. That's it. Jesus said the same thing. He said, God so loved this world that he gave his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You don't need to clean your life up before coming to Jesus. God loves you right where you are in the mess that you're in, and he wants to fill you with his spirit and give you a joy that the Bible says is a joy inexpressible to totally transform you. And then God will give you the strength to to clean up your life and live in a godly way. But first, he just wants you to say yes. So we're going to pray together. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never committed to following Jesus, if you've never given your heart over and let Jesus be the leader of your life, we're going to pray a prayer together right now. But there's nothing magical about the prayer. The prayer itself does not save you. Jesus said it. It's your belief that either saves or condemns you. So if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and if you want this type of joy that I'm talking about, the Bible says that right where you sit, you're a child of God. Your spirit is reborn because of your belief. I'd love to lead you in this prayer also if you need joy. If you're already a Christ follower, but you lack joy in the fullest, if you've experienced it, maybe tasted of the goodness of God, but you need an extra dose of joy in the fullest in your life right now, let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you for the cross. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for me, that you died for all of us in this room so that we would not have to bear the weight of our sin, but that you bore it on yourself. We receive that forgiveness now in Jesus' name, God. We thank you for joy inexpressible. Would you fill this room with your spirit? Would you fill us with your joy, God? We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Church podcast. If God uses this message to impact your life, tell us your story by emailing mystory@thepurposechurch.com. Be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website at thepurposechurch.com to get connected and receive all the latest information.